fasten your seatbelts, get comfortable. This is amazing. Someone called chapters 30 through 33 Jeremiah's book of consolations. This is the best, this is the most positive, it's the most encouraging, and it's the most prophecy packed section of the entire book of Jeremiah. And we're just going to get, make a little headway into it tonight. These prophecies, chapter 30 through 33, were probably all written together as a collection meant to go, intended by the Father to go together. They're exciting. They're invigorating. We're going to go right out to the very end on this in this first chapter. But what's most surprising is when these prophecies were given. When is that? Look over at chapter 32, verse 1. Chapter 32, verse 1 tells us the word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord in the tenth year of Zedekiah, king of Judah, which was the eighteenth year of Nebuchadnezzar. What does that mean? 587 B.C. 587 B.C. So what, Rick? So these glorious prophecies came in the last year of Judah's existence. We are down to the final hours. These prophecies came from the Lord through the heart of Jeremiah in Judah's darkest days and during their deepest distress to date. Some seven years have gone by since Hananiah, back in chapter 28, remember the false prophet Hananiah? Since he prophesied falsely that everything would be fine in just two years. Well, seven years have gone by and things have gone from bad to worse. And in fact, all the false prophecies were falling apart to the great disappointment and disillusionment and horror of the people. As this collection of prophecies comes from the lips, from the pen really, of Jeremiah... While he is penning these prophecies, the siege of Babylon is underway. Nebuchadnezzar's armies are amassed outside of Jerusalem. It is shut up. Cannibalism is now taking place in Jerusalem because the siege is so bad. No food coming in or out. No getting out, but that you die by the sword. It was a horrific time. Jeremiah himself writes these amazing, glorious, wonderful Breathtaking prophecies from a prison cell in the courtyard. He could only write these prophecies as the Lord tells him to, and yet they are all about Israel's remarkable future. God's timing is just impeccable. And it all begins, and I'm going to give you seven things to jot down, and we'll jot them down quickly. It begins, number one, the days are coming. The days are coming. Verse 1, chapter 30, the word which came to Jeremiah from the Lord saying, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, write all the words which I have spoken to you in a book. Now that may be the entire book of Jeremiah, or perhaps as many believe it's this book, the book of Consolations, chapter 30, 31, 32, and 33. For behold, days are coming, declares the Lord when I will restore the fortunes of my people Israel and Judah. The Lord says, I will also bring them back to the land that I gave to their forefathers, and they shall possess it. Jeremiah is sitting in prison. What do you think he thinks when he hears that? (sighs) Thank you, Jesus. (laughs) Thank you, Lord. That Jeremiah can now pin this glorious promise when the vast majority of the prophecies out of the mouth of Jeremiah are negative. They're bad. 
And yet here he's able to write, days are coming. The days are coming. Jeremiah will use that phrase eight times. Days are coming. Six times he'll use it in these four chapters alone. Days are coming. I love that phrase. Days are coming. And the reason I love it so much is because it is just saturated with hope. Are you in a bad way right now? Hey, days are coming. You having a rough week? Days are coming. Is your life falling apart all around you? Days are coming. Good days. Blessed days. Glorious days are coming. And that's why we can say the hope of the Lord does not disappoint. Days are coming. But let's be clear about what days we're talking about. Days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will restore the fortunes of my people Israel and Judah. All of my people. He calls them out. Here He calls them out. Israel and Judah. Northern Israel. Southern Judah. The whole kingdom. All of my people. That's who these days are for. And a little further on, He's going to say Jacob. And when he says Jacob, again, he's talking about all 12 tribes of Israel, the 12 sons of Jacob. So this is for everybody, all of my people. It piggybacks off of a prophecy given by Moses. Deuteronomy 30, verse 1. It shall be when all of these things have come upon you, the blessing and the curse which I have set before you. And you call them to mind in all the nations where the Lord God has banished you, not just Babylon. And you return to the Lord your God and obey Him with all your heart and soul according to all that I command you today, you and your sons. Then the Lord your God will restore you from captivity and have compassion on you and will gather you again from all the peoples where the Lord your God has scattered you. And gang, I believe these days are already underway. Oh, not in its totality. But these are days when Jacob comes home. Days when the people of Israel flock back to the land. Now the fortunes are not fully restored. Nor is the heart of the people. Although as we've shared in here before, Messianic Judaism is a fast-moving faith inside of Israel. Messianic? Well, that's just Jews who believe that Christ is their Messiah. They believe the same thing you do. Same thing I do. That Jesus is the fulfillment of the law. Jesus is the promised Messiah. And while the fortunes are not complete and the people have not wholeheartedly given their heart to the Lord, turned around to Him, they are returning to the land in droves and they have been since 1948, actually since before that time, the last century. We've seen something take place that has been remarkable. Something that didn't happen for 1,800 plus years before that. Marvelous things are happening. Days are coming. But another day must come first before this finds its fulfillment and it is the day of the Lord. Jeremiah 30, verse 4. These are the words which the Lord spoke concerning Israel and concerning Judah. Thus says the Lord, I have heard a sound of terror, of dread, and there is no peace. Ask now and see if a male can give birth. See, the thought just makes me shudder. Why do I see every man with his hands on his loins as a woman in childbirth? And why have all faces turned pale? And Jeremiah might have been tempted to think, yeah, yeah, that's what's going on right now, Lord. No, this is worse. Alas, for that day is great, verse 7. There is none like it. 
And it is the time of Jacob's distress or Jacob's trouble. But he will be saved from it. Jesus said in Matthew 24, 21, Then there will be a great tribulation, such as has not occurred since the beginning of the world, until now, nor ever will. Now think about that. Jeremiah writes, The day is great. There is none like it. He wrote it in 587. Fast forward to the days of Jesus, and Jesus says the same thing. A tribulation is coming for Israel such as never has been seen before. There is no day like it. Well, wait a minute. Then it can't be 586 B.C. It can't be the first fall of Jerusalem. Well, then perhaps it's the second fall of Jerusalem. A.D. 70, the preterist would say. All the things in Revelation were fulfilled in A.D. 70 when Jerusalem fell that time. There is none like it. There is no day like it. Jesus said there will never again be a day like it. Well, you've got to factor in the 6 million Jews lost in the Holocaust. So AD 70 cannot be the day being talked about by Jeremiah or by Jesus. And Jesus went on to say in Matthew 24, 22, unless those days had been cut short, no life would have been saved. No life would have been saved. That's pretty all-encompassing. That's pretty global. The days of A.D. 70 were cut short, did end. But there are plenty of people around the globe who were not touched by the fall of Jerusalem in A.D. 70. The days in 586 B.C. in the fall of Jerusalem, the first time, didn't last forever. But again, people worldwide were not touched by what happened on that day. Jesus says, but for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. Who's the elect, Bible students? Israel. It's the Jews. It's not the church. Well, how can you say the elect is not the church? Because the church isn't here. The church is already home. The church has already been called up to be with Jesus. This is the distress of Jacob. Secondly, second thing to note. So we have the days are coming. Second thing, the distress of Jacob. It is the seven-year tribulation described in detail, Revelation 6-19. through Today, we live in the times of the Gentiles, Luke 21-24. But at an hour when you do not think He will, Jesus will catch up His church to the place He has prepared for us. How can you be so sure, Pastor Rick? How do we know you're not just one of those false teachers? Read Matthew 24, verses 40 through 44. Read John 14, verses 1 through 3. Read 1 Thessalonians 14, verses 16 through 18. And if you want to read in a larger context, feel free. Read all of those books. Read 1 Corinthians 15, 51, and 52. Check it out in the Bible. I'm only telling you what Scripture has already said. Shortly after the church is called up, the time of Jacob's distress will begin. It is not synced with the rapture. Again, you Bible students know it's synced with the signing of a covenant with a man of peace, so-called, truly a man of lawlessness and antichrist. And that kicks off the time of Jacob's distress. But I love this and note this right now, but the last line, he will be saved from it. Words of great encouragement, great hope. Before the glorious days, before the kingdom days, there must be the time of Jacob's trouble, Jacob's distress, the day of the Lord. 
but he will be saved from it. Paul says, Romans 11, verse 25, I don't want you, brethren, to be uninformed of this mystery so that you will not be wise in your own estimation that a partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And so, Paul's words, all Israel will be saved. He goes on and says, just as it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. Where's Zion? It's Jerusalem, Israel. He will come from Zion. He will remove ungodliness from Jacob. This is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. All Israel will be saved. Jeremiah writes, He will be saved from it. Jesus says in Matthew 24, 34, Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. And just to stir you up by way of reminder, that may mean the generation alive when the fig tree sprouts, which I believe happened in May 14, 1948. Israel became a nation again, a nation in a day. And he may have meant, Jesus may have meant, that the generation who saw that happen would not cease, would not pass away until all these things take place. That is, that generation continues right up to the coming of Jesus, which is exciting because that's this generation. But you got to allow for the other possibility. When Jesus says, I say, this generation will not pass away till all these things take place, the word generation, genea in the Greek, can also mean a people. It can mean a time, a generation. It can also mean a generation of people, which is very encouraging for Israel because Jesus may very well have been saying, this generation, this genus, this people Israel will not pass away before all of this has taken place. What do you mean, Jesus? I mean I will protect my people. I will see my people through all the way to the end. Well, Rick, which one do you think it is? I'm going with both. Okay? The time of Jacob's trouble. It's a final wake-up call for Israel. It is a final chance for the Jewish people to see God as they remember Him from their history, judging the world, interacting with the world in supernatural and powerful ways that they might turn to Him in one last opportunity. It's a wake-up call to the Jewish people worldwide who will have survived all the way since the time of Abraham. Man, Satan has worked hard to wipe this people out. And they're still here. And they will be here until Jesus comes. They're going to survive the distress of Jacob for it will be followed, number three, by the Davidic kingdom. The Davidic kingdom, verse 8. It shall come about on that day, declares the Lord of hosts, that I will break His yoke from off their neck and will tear off their bonds and strangers will no longer make them their slaves. But they shall serve the Lord their God with David their king, whom I will raise up for them. Fear not, O Jacob, my servant, declares the Lord, and be not dismayed, O Israel, for behold, I will save you from afar and your offspring from the land of their captivity. And Jacob will return and will be quiet and at ease and no one will make him afraid. He doesn't say Judah will return. He says Jacob will return. Judah was just one of Jacob's sons. And Judah would indeed return from Babylon to the land. But we are seeing today Jacob return as all the people of Israel are coming back to the land. 
But he says no one will make him afraid. And right now, all the people of Israel are afraid. Iran is fast working on nuclear weapons. Syria has perhaps released already chemical weapons against its own people, but that's right at Israel's border. And the people are concerned. The people are afraid right now. But God says, I'm with you, declares the Lord, to save you. The Davidic kingdom. Think about this for a moment. Since their time of captivity in 586 B.C., all the way up to today, there has never been a descendant of David ruling on the throne in Israel. Ruling from Jerusalem. Oh, there have been prime ministers and presidents. There has not been a single divinely given ruler, a king, as Israel had in days past. But in verse 9, God says He's going to raise up David their king. They shall serve the Lord their God and David their king whom I will raise up for them. Some Bible scholars say this is a messianic statement. That the David their king he's referring to here is the son of David, Jesus Christ. So it's really Jesus who's going to come and rule and reign. Now, plenty of other passages in Scripture tell us Jesus is going to rule and reign. And absolutely, I believe He will. But is this referring to Jesus, or is this referring to David, whom I will raise up for them in verse 9? Anyone want to take a guess? Is it Jesus or David? we got a David. got another David. Anyone for Jesus there? You're going, Rick, there's a trick question in this. I know you. I think it's going to be David. I think it's very specifically David who's going to be raised up. Now you might say, what? That's just weird. David raised up? That's kind of strange. Why? Don't you believe in resurrection? You don't think David's going to be raised when everybody else is raised? You don't believe David's going to be there? Okay, well maybe David's going to be there. But David, back there on the, on the throne? That, that doesn't make sense. There's Jesus who's supposed to be on the throne. Listen to what David wrote. Psalm 16.10 He said, You will not abandon my soul to Sheol. David believed in resurrection. Nor will you allow your Holy One to undergo decay. My soul. I think David was talking about himself. Your Holy One, I believe David was inspired to be talking about Jesus. Two resurrections. I'm going to be resurrected, David says. And you're not even going to let your Holy One stay in the grave long enough to see decay. David has seen some decay over the years. I'm sure of it. Now, I haven't seen his corpse, but Peter referred to it in Acts chapter 2. He says, hey, quoting that verse, he says, David's tomb has been with us to this day. It's in Jerusalem right now. And if we could get away with it, we could exhume the body and it would not look good. He has seen decay. But God's Holy One, Jesus Christ... Never saw decay. Three days in and out of the grave, he just camped out, you know? Absolutely dead and absolutely raised to life, but he only borrowed the tomb. And he's the Holy One I believe David spoke of, but I believe David also spoke of himself when he said, you won't abandon my soul to Sheol. Ezekiel the prophet, chapter 34, verse 23 says, Then I will set over them one shepherd, my servant, David. And he will feed them. And he will feed them himself and be their shepherd. Well, again, some might say that's got to be messianic. It's got to be talking about Jesus, right? The son of David. He goes on. I, the Lord, will be their God and my servant David will be prince 
among them I the Lord have spoken. Now, I don't mean to be dogmatic about this, but there's no reason not to take the Word of God literally in Jeremiah and in Ezekiel. Because he could have just as easily have said, Son of David, but he says David. And I think he means David. Of course, Jesus is ruler and king. That's why Ezekiel calls David a prince. So I think he's going to be kind of like the vice president. You know, Jesus will send David off for you know diplomatic missions and stuff of little consequence. There you go. Days are coming. The distress of Jacob, the Davidic kingdom, number four, the discipline of Israel. Verse 11, the discipline of Israel. For I am with you, declares the Lord, to save you. For I will completely destroy all the nations where I have scattered you, only I will not destroy you completely. Note that. I will not destroy you completely. Because God keeps for Himself a remnant. I will chasten you justly and will by no means leave you unpunished. For thus says the Lord, your wound is incurable. (laughs) And your injury is serious. There is no one to plead your cause. No healing for your sore. No recovery for you. What's going on with the Jews in the tribulation? They have got to come to the point where they finally recognize they are messed up. Just like you and me. What brings a person to their knees before Jesus? A final recognition that I am a sinner and I am going straight to hell in my sin unless I have a Savior. And right now, Judaism in the world today, you know this, the the Jewish mindset is, be as good as you can. Just be a good person, and that's how you get saved. They don't have the sacrifices anymore, right? So there's no Day of Atonement, no literal Yom Kippur, where, where the animals are slain and the blood is sprinkled in the most holy place. That doesn't happen. So what atones for your sins? Ask a Jewish person today. What atones for your sins in the holy days? The awesome days there between Yom Kippur and Rosh Hashanah? What atones? Good deeds? God makes it clear your wound is incurable. There's no healing for your sore. There's no recovery for you. That's why the Jewish people go into the tribulation. To recognize there is no hope in yourselves. Verse 14, all of your lovers have forgotten you. They do not seek you. For I have wounded you with the wound of an enemy, with the punishment of a cruel one, because your iniquity is great and your sins are numerous. Why do you cry out over your injury? Your pain is incurable. Because your iniquity is great and your sins are numerous, I have done these things to you. God says, it's me. I'm the one who's brought this upon you. To show you how incurably sick you truly are. The discipline of Israel. You know, you could say it this way, Israel is the object lesson of sin and punishment for all of us. They are a microcosm of what happens to the whole world who needs the Savior. They are a picture of what happens when a people stay in rebellion and truly believe they're good enough to get saved. God says, I'll show you what happens to that mindset. Tribulation. Punishment. Discipline. The whole history of Israel under the law points to that truth, but Israel will believe, they will see, they will know Jesus as Lord. And so the day of the Lord is for Israel 
But it serves another purpose. Number five in your list. Number four was the discipline of Israel. Number five, the devouring of their adversaries. Verse 16. Therefore, all who devour you will be devoured. And all your adversaries, every one of them will go into captivity. And those who plunder you will be for plunder. And all who prey upon you, I will give for prey. For I will restore, to watch this, I will restore you to health. And I will heal you of your wounds. Wait a minute, I thought their wounds were incurable. I thought their sickness was beyond healing. It is, in and of themselves. But God says, I will heal you. I will restore you. And then He says, because they have called you an outcast, saying, it is Zion, no one cares for her. The devouring of the adversaries. God will deal with every offense ever given against the Jewish people. Vengeance is mine. I will repay, saith the Lord. And He will repay every anti-Semitic move on the face of the planet against His people, Israel. It does not pay to be on the opposing side of God's people. Well, you sound like one of those Christian Zionists. Sign me up. Absolutely. Zechariah chapter 1, verse 14 says, The angel who was speaking with me said to me, Proclaim, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I am exceedingly jealous for Jerusalem and for Zion. But I am very angry with the nations who are at ease. For while I was only a little angry, they furthered the disaster. That's why wherever Israel stands, I stand. I will stand with Israel. For Zion's sake... Isaiah said, I will not keep silent. And we will stand with Israel as the people of God. Not a perfect people, but God's people. And God's chosen vessel in this world through whom He brought the Messiah, Jesus. I will stand with them. President Obama is in Israel right now. He's made the trip. <clears throat> Finally. <laughs> but you know, good. I'm glad. He's there. He's gone to visit. He has an uphill battle because he is not popular in Israel right now. I saw this today. The White House released a video. Ben Rhodes, the national uh, Deputy National Security Advisor, in this video goes over President Obama's trip. Here's the itinerary, and he lays it out. And a graphic shows up of a map of the Middle East showing exactly where President Obama's going to be at what time. And you can watch this. You can go online and, and see this on YouTube. Just Google President Obama's visit to Israel. It, it's there. So Ben Rose is going over the trip, and he says, first, you know, President Obama's going to go to Israel, and it shows this graphic of Israel. And the graphic it shows of Israel doesn't include Jerusalem. It doesn't include the Golan, and it doesn't include any of the West Bank. All of that is not even shown. He's going to go to Israel. Then he's going to go to the Palestinian territories, and guess what shows up? The Golan Heights, the West Bank, and Jerusalem. So what does the White House think is the capital of Israel? They would say Tel Aviv, not Jerusalem. Ask an Israeli. I'll never forget the very first time we traveled to Israel, and our, our tour guide at the end of the tour took to the mic in the bus, and he said, I just want to ask you all for a favor. When you go back to the States, would you please ask your congressmen, write them, call them, ask them to support Jerusalem as our capital? That was number one. It's the one thing he asked of our group. 
Jerusalem is our capital. And they see it that way and believe it to be because God calls it His city. And yet our president does not, our White House does not. For the Jewish people, and according to God, it is Zion and no one cares for her. We better care about what happens with Jerusalem. Because God does. And the adversaries will be devoured. Verse 18. Verse 18, now we get into the dwelling places of Jacob. Number 6, the dwelling places of Jacob. A couple more minutes. You guys are doing great. I know you're very comfortable. Verse 18, thus says the Lord, Behold, I will restore the fortunes of the tents of Jacob and have compassion on his dwelling places. And the city will be rebuilt on its ruin and the palace will stand on its rightful place. You see, God says very clearly, the land's mine. It's all going to be restored. The goal on the West Bank, Gaza, Jerusalem. It's going to be restored. It's my land. Judah will live there. Jacob will live there. From then, from then will proceed thanksgiving and the voice of those who celebrate. And I will multiply them and they will not be diminished. I will also honor them and they will not be insignificant. The dwelling places of Jacob and it speaks of a time when there will only be the increase of God's people. Which brings me to number seven. Last one, the divine rule of the Lord. Verse 21. I love this. Their leader shall be one of them. And their ruler shall come forth from their midst. And I will bring him near and he shall approach me. For who would dare to risk his life to approach me, declares the Lord. You shall be my people and I will be your God. Verse 21. Man, that ought to be underlined, circled, memorized, and kept close to your heart. Their leader shall be one of them. Who is their leader? Jesus. He's a Jew. He's one of them. Their leader will be one of them. He will come forth from their midst because Jesus is a Jew. And I love this part. I will bring him near and he will approach me. Who would dare risk his life to approach me? Well, Lord, you just said that you're going to bring him near and he'll approach you. So, what's the deal? Well, Jesus would approach God because Jesus is God. There's no threat there. Jesus can see God and live because Jesus is God. No man can see God and live. We die. But I'm going to bring Him near. What does this say? That their leader is one of them. Yes. But even more wonderfully, that their leader comes from them. He's relatable to man. And He approaches God because He can come before God. Relatable to us and perfectly divine. Son of man, Son of God. He's both. Hebrews 4.14 says, Since we have such a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we don't have a high priest who can't sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. That's Jesus. He's one of us. He gets us. He's a Jew. He walked on the earth. And you know what? He also passed through the greater tabernacle. He passed through the veil, which is His flesh. He came before the Father. He was from the Father. He is one with the Father. We have a Jesus who totally gets us and yet can totally approach the Father on our behalf. And this is their leader. This will be our leader in the final kingdom. 
Verse 22. You shall be My people and I will be your God. Behold, the tempest of the Lord. Wrath has gone forth. A sweeping tempest. It will burst on the head of the wicked. The fierce anger of the Lord will not turn back until He has performed and until He has accomplished the intent of His heart. That's the divine rule of God. And He closes by saying, in the latter days you will understand this. Jeremiah is writing this down in prison. And you know what? The key to dating the prophecies of this book is that sentence. In the latter days, you will understand this. What's God saying? The prophecy I'm giving you in this book of consolation, it's not for today. It's for the end. It's for the latter days. And those days, God would say to Israel, and believe I believe He would say to you and me tonight, those days are the days He wants us to fix our hope on. The days when all this come to pass. In the latter days you will understand this. Jeremiah, you're not going to get it right now. It's too big. It doesn't jive with what you're seeing happen as Jerusalem crumbles around you. But in the end, you'll get it. You will understand. I want you to turn back to Jeremiah 29.11. I want to read this one more time, give you one little hint about something, and then we'll let it lie until Sunday. Or until Jesus comes, which I hope comes first. Jeremiah 29.11, For I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for calamity, to give you a future and a hope. And when Christians read that verse today, Rick's opinion, and we say, see, God's got a plan for my life, we diminish the power of the verse. It is much bigger This is not just a verse that I quote to say, well, I went for a job interview today and I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to give you a future and a hope, so I know He's going to get me the job because He's given me a future. It's not just God saying, I want you to know that I I have your your life laid out in front of you, what you're going to do and how you're going to do things. Now, that's part of it. But that's a very tiny part of what He's saying here. This verse is massive. And to understand that, you've got to hear it in Hebrew. You've got to actually understand just one Hebrew word. Plans to give you a future and a hope. And the word future there in the Hebrew is akarit. And it's a word you've heard before. Akarit. It means latter. Last or most often end. Read that way, the Lord promises Israel and promises you and me tonight a hopeful End. Not just a hopeful life right now. A hopeful end. See how much bigger that is? And those are the plans that God has for us. Praise the Lord.